Shreeder, how about we dive into some housekeeping items? Let's do it. Any follow-up here? Um, I mean, the feedback generally seems to be um, pretty positive, and um, people seem to want more um, audio clips. And, um, you know, we'll we'll try to make that happen when we can, but... um, you know, you can run into some copyright issues pretty pretty quickly. So, so yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll try to work around it when we can and and, and see what happens. Otherwise, um, I, sh- I should say that we've sort of said this before, but everything that we talk about, you know, pretty extensively, will be in the show notes. So, for those of you who don't know, um, yeah, some podcasts have show notes, and what what those what those basically are is kind of along with the description of the episode, we add in a lot of useful links. Uh, we, we basically link out to YouTube videos, different internet resources, uh, music on YouTube, basically to kind of serve as a springboard to explore some of the topics and ideas we talked about and to actually go listen to some of the pieces we talk about. We certainly <laughs> go through a lot in some of these episodes, so I highly encourage people to either while listening or like afterwards to go to either look in their podcast app. Usually, it depends on the app, but in Apple Podcasts, it's basically just by scrolling down after you click the description. Same in Overcast, when you slide over to see the description, all the show notes that we added, so all the all the uh, hyperlinks are going to be right there. Um, and then, of course, on our website, impolitetolisten.com, we always have not only can you listen to our latest episode right there, but we also have all the links and show notes right front and center um, on the homepage. So if you're ever curious about anything we talk about or want to hear it to greater length or more detail or just want to learn more, um, I highly recommend going to our website. Yeah, and... Uh... You know, if you're not already using a podcast player, you should be using a podcast player. Um, it's 2020. It's yeah, it's it's 2020, and uh, you know, why why listen to podcasts on the same kind of um, interface as you would listen to music? They're completely different things. So um, you know, find a bespoke podcast player, and um, the show notes will look great on there, and they'll be easy to follow. Um, I use Overcast. I think Chris does too. So, yeah, it's free. Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, Apple Podcasts is pretty good now that they updated their app a bit. But um, yeah, Overcast, who is not sponsoring this episode <laughs> at all, this is just our candid <laughs> opinion. Overcast is, I think, hands down the best podcast player right now, and it's free. So, just go download it. Yeah. <laughs> You'll thank us later. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who listen on Spotify, or if you have if you have a Spotify account, um, we have a Spotify playlist. It's called the Impolite to Listen playlist, and um, there there we'll just be sort of throwing up um, any music that we talk about, or you know even if we only mention it obliquely, we'll we'll throw it up there as a sort of um, way to have a, a playlist that's kind of um, whatever's on our minds right now whatever's on the collective mind of the show um mm-hmm. it's, also, it's also a great place if you're just if you're so, if you're someone who um is trying to get into classical music or more into classical music it's a great place to to just go and um you know we'll we'll be updating it fairly regularly like on a you know pretty much daily basis or weekly basis um so it's a great place to just have a have a 
running and constantly refreshed um, stream of classical music to to check out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it's a really cool idea that instead um, we were talking about the potential of having a different playlist for each episode we do. But I think it's kind of more fun and also more practical just to have one one grand playlist for our podcast and whatever we talked about in the latest episode we'll have on there and we'll move some stuff around shuffle it have some surprises hopefully <laughs> as well and yeah we hope you enjoy it i mean we're, we're definitely going to enjoy making it and listening to it ourselves so hope you join us yeah for what it's worth i've been listening to it <laughs> <laughs> there we go yeah i think it's good we bring this up some people have asked us about you know where can they learn more? Where can they listen to some of the pieces we talked about? And then we tell them about, oh, just go check out the links in our show notes. And sometimes people just aren't aware of, of what those are and how to access them. So we hope this really kind of helps you guys out. And we have a lot of fun making the show notes. It's, <laughs> it's always a thrill. It's kind of the last, almost like the candles on a cake. It's like the last ingredient we kind of throw on before we publish the episode itself. So, so it's kind of fun for us to go through and and revisit the things we talked about and find cool links for everything. Yeah, and, and in this last episode, they were pretty epic. So, um, you know, go, do go take a look. Um, there are hours and hours of um, wonderful um, content. And I hate the word content. I don't know why I just used it. But <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's a great, it's a great um, resource. And also, yeah, um, I, I may have already said this, but to make it clear, um, on Spotify, our show notes don't don't really work. Um, we're trying to figure it out, but I, I, I don't think it will ever work on Spotify. Um, they just don't have show note compatibility, it seems. So if you are determined to not download a podcast player and keep listening on Spotify, um, may I redirect you instead of show notes to the Spotify playlist? So, yeah. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I mean, Spotify is still new in the podcast world, and... We reached out, or or I've like submitted tickets. I've tweeted at them. I've gone on their support pages, and yeah, pretty much the whole podcast. Podcast, wow. Podcast, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty much the whole podcast community is pretty dissatisfied with Spotify in its current state of how it works as a podcast player. I'm sure they'll fix it. Um, they're smart. They know how the world works, and they care about the they care about their community. But right now, um, show notes just across pretty much every podcast we've even seen played on Spotify just don't format and don't work. So either go download a superior podcast player, <laughs> which most of them are all free. Even uh, Yeah, go check out our website, impolite2listen.com, and or go uh, listen to our Spotify playlist. Yeah. And and uh, in, in the playlist, I'll try to put the music in um, an interesting order. So what I do for the show notes is is that we, we try to keep it um, pretty much chronological so that as you're following through, as you're listening to the show, you can follow through on the show notes and, and click through to the sort of next topic on the list. But what I'm, what I'm going to try to do with the Spotify playlist is to play around with the order to try to highlight certain points that, that we've been making. So um, the example right now is that I've put um, Nino Rota's score for The Godfather along with some of his classical compositions and same with um, Eric Korngold who we were talking about last time um, and so there you can really see 
um, the relationships between between the two things and Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Eric, oh, how the how the turntables have turned. <laughs> <laughs> you walked right into that one, buddy. <laughs> You'll see um, Eric Wolfgang Korngold's uh, film score is next to his classical compositions, and you can really see the the relationship between them. Um, so yeah. And and you know I'm sure we'll figure out more more interesting ways to to um, make the playlist flow in a way that's um, fun and and not simply chronological like they come up in the show in the show notes. So yeah, and yeah, and and maybe we'll throw up links to our Twitter on the show notes because th- that really is the best way for you to give us feedback. And um, yeah. Also, I do like to think that people of a certain caliber do listen to this podcast and act on it. So. Pretty much the day after we released our episode two on film music, in which we discuss the great film, The Day the Earth Stood Still, with the score by Bernard Herrmann and the use of the theremin that I brilliantly recreated yeah. on, that, on that episode. <laughs> Pretty much the day after that, Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted a tweet that was a scene from The Day the Earth Stood Still about how like aliens were smart enough to use ramps instead of stairs and they're flying saucers or something like that <laughs> but anyway i i thought that was kind of funny and maybe it was a coincidence but maybe not it's not impossible in some universe in, in, some, in some universe, universe <laughs> it might be possible that neil degrasse tyson was listening to our podcast i also just have to bring up that you know i mentioned one of my favorite movies of all time in that episode which is cinema paradiso uh, with the brilliant score by Ennio Morricone, came out in 1990, I believe, and it's yeah, it's a really really fantastic film. Anyway, that film, as of beginning of this month, as of uh, either May 1st or May 2nd, that film is now streaming on HBO. So if you have HBO, you can go watch it now. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, as always, of course, you know the the only possible explanation for these kinds of phenomena is not any sort of cognitive bias or a new car effect or anything like that. It, it is indeed that the um, most um, intellectual and powerful people on the planet are tuning in to impolite to listen. I didn't want to say it, but yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. I hate to be the one to say, but I think we're influencers, Chris. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, it was, it was funny because I, I, I checked that film like pretty regularly to see if it was streaming anywhere. And I've been doing that for a year and it hasn't streamed anywhere. And all of a sudden it's on HBO. So, so I guess we got to do like, more uh, film podcasts, huh? Why don't we um, hop into kind of what we thought we'd try to discuss this episode regarding the digital era of classical music and how to enjoy. And maybe we can kind of bring it, you know, to really relevant modern times and how how you can do that during quarantine era. And so, Sridhar, when someone comes to you and asks, you know, what's the best way to listen to classical music? You know, there's, there's a lot of options nowadays from several different streaming platforms, the Spotify's, the Apple Music's, um, uh, to kind of free resources, you know, YouTube, there's a lot of free stuff on the, uh, internet now in general, and also kind of, um, paid concerts, paid digital concert halls. Where do you kind of start? 
if someone came to me who who was not a classical musician or mm-hmm. you know someone trying to just get into classical music mm-hmm. i say hands down the best place to start is youtube when when you when you search for something in youtube you can be fairly broad you can you can search something on youtube without really knowing what you're searching for and there's there's a built-in weighting system on the quality of the results that you're going to get so if you don't really know that much about bach and you just want to start listening to more and and you don't really know where to start if you search um you know js bach into spotify you're going to get uh, a mess of results you're going to get mm-hmm. a bunch of songs that are tracks and you don't really necessarily know um which songs fit into which movements fit into which pieces or sets of pieces you don't necessarily yeah. even know what it, what an allemand is um and why it's a track you don't know anything about the performers or you know it's this mess that you have to sort through whereas on youtube you can just sort of search for bach and and the 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 sort of view system and um the the view count it sort of filters as such that you're you're going to sort of find you know andra schiff glen gould um mm, yeah a lot of know, important things yeah, to listen to and so yeah harnacore um, all the good stuff <laughs> yeah you'll you'll find it you'll find it fairly near the top of the list and and then so it, it's a way i think youtube is the best place to to really explore without knowing what you're looking for finding things mm. that you like so searching for broad categories just sort of searching through cl- clicking through related links until you find people that you um really enjoy listening to or pieces that you really enjoy listening to and then from there you can go to one of the streaming services or something like that i also think for for someone who's trying to get into classical music one one um thing that might really help is is actually just seeing the performers mm, um good point cuz sometimes it's it's you know i think there's something to to you know one one of the few things that the concert hall the one of the few things that the concert hall has going for it is that um it it it's a good way to bring in new listeners because there's a whole there's a whole ritual that goes along with it and there's a whole visual element to it so it's not all about the music it's not it's not a, it's not this abstract experience there there are things that you see there are performers that you see and empathize with or that you like or whatever and then there's like a whole ritual that goes into it so i think if you're just trying to get into classical music and you go straight to a streaming service and you you're just swamped with all of these recordings of by people that you don't know and you can't attach a face to um it might be kind of hard to um to to really get into it in that way whereas i think with youtube it, it can be more of of an easygoing experience to just sort of search for something look at these performers and be like oh look look you know it actually looks really exciting what they're doing or like that guy's really getting into it you know this is awesome so yeah i i youtube is my first suggestion Yeah, completely agree actually. Now that I think about it. So, we both know I I used to work at a major tech company in the department of of uh, media operations. <laughs> And it's it's very hard to get classical music right in these streaming services. So, we look at Spotify, um Apple Music, Amazon Music. It's it's very it it can be very frustrating and the nature of classical music is working against itself too where there's a lot of information and metadata to get wrong right <laughs> if we look up a you know 
Beethoven Symphony 3, uh, for example. It's like, all right, we have the artist, all right, the Chicago Symphony. Or wait, but sometimes, no, that's Beethoven, depending on who, depending on the way it was classified. And then the the date, was it like the date it was composed or the date it was performed? Or is it the conductor? Or is it the conductor, the artist? Or in those God Forbidden <laughs> CDs where there's a concerto attached to the symphony, is it the concerto yeah. soloist, the conductor, the orchestra, or the composer, all of the above, in what order? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a mess. Exactly. And like, and how, how, how it's titled, uh, you know, Beethoven Symphony Number no. Three, Beethoven Eroica, which is the name of the third symphony he he gave it. Beethoven Eroica Symphony Number no. Three is the three. You know, is it N O period three? Just N O three. Are all the movements different tracks, or are they sometimes all lumped into one grand like hour long track? There's so much to kind of. There's so much to get wrong that most streaming services do <laughs> get it wrong. <laughs> And so one thing that YouTube has that I've always been impressed about is, and it might just because it might have to do with just the sheer volume of stuff on YouTube that they have enough data points to get it right, is, is how, how easy it is to find what you're looking for. Exactly. And, and, and even in the standard streaming services nowadays, it's still very frustrating. Uh, a girl I know was was showing me a screenshot of <laughs> of her of her listening to the Nutcracker uh, a, f- a few weeks ago. And yes, you can listen to that music any time of year. Great music has no season. <laughs> <laughs> That's a topic for another day, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, we'll save it for the Christmas uh, special. <laughs> there we go. In flight to listen holiday special. <laughs> Ring-a-ding-ding. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so... It was pretty much, it was one of the standard recordings. It was one of the standard recordings. I can't remember if it was the New York City Ballet recording of the early ni- early 90s with, I think it's David Zinman conducting that. Yeah. I think it, it, it might have been his. And yeah, you look at the at the track list after you open up the album and because of the user interface, you can only see like Nutcracker and then like a colon where it's about to like say, where it's about to say what part of the Nutcracker it is, but it's cut off. So you have like, so you have 30 tracks, you know, you know what the first one is, you know what the last one probably is. Other than that, unless you are extremely familiar with that particular recording and of the Nutcracker itself, you're just pointing and clicking, trying to find what you want right in the middle. <laughs> it's impossible. It's nearly impossible to do, even if you know the piece, let alone if you are trying to know it. <laughs> right. And that's the first thing I thought. I'm like, yeah, I, I know this piece quite well, and I'm having a hard time finding the track I want. Yeah. So... Yeah, so there's that. Um, side note, the Nutcracker, folks, in its entirety, you know, not not just the suite, not just the highlights, which are fantastic, but the whole, whole the whole giant ballet and the whole, all the music that it entails, is really wonderful, and is always there for you if you know where to look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Nutcracker is is one of the great pieces of music of all time, and the fact that there has been this sort of bastardization of it because of Christmas music. Um, it, it's a shame, especially because most of the tunes that people use are from Act 2, and Act 1 is really where it's at. If you, there, there are some moments in Act 1 that are clearly, you know, they're so forward-looking. Um, 
There, there are places mm. that sound like they could have been written by Stravinsky. And in fact, in, in Stravinsky's ballet, Petrushka, there are almost near quotes of, of really? from the first act of Nutcracker. Yeah. So it's, 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 not, it's not this fluffy holiday music. It's, it's a, it was a very uh, forward-looking, brilliant piece of music by one of the great melodists and orchestrators of all time. Um, even something like the Sugar Plum Fairy, you know, the celesta was a new instrument. It, right, it was the right. first, the Nutcracker was the first time that the celesta was used. Um, Tchaikovsky saw it at the World Fair, and he had it secretly shipped back. Um, from Paris, right? From Paris. Uh, yeah. yeah, he had it secretly shipped back and um, I believe it wasn't even they, they, he didn't even use the, the Celesta in dress rehearsals leading up to the premiere of the Nutcracker because he didn't want the word to get out and he didn't want to be scooped by other composers um, because he wanted yeah. the effect to be this completely new and special thing so this thing that we uh, you know completely think of as sort of kitty music mm-hmm. um, like music box yeah music, music box music yeah, yeah it yeah. was in fact um, very modern and and new and uh and and secretive there, there there's a little bit of cloak and dagger involved yeah, in the love it. in the in the in the beginnings of the nutcracker so you know um, yeah 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 so i believe it was premiered in the city we now call st petersburg the word was uh what tchaikovsky said in one of his letters i ever call is he was particularly worried that korsakov rimsky korsakov would steal it if he heard it first and their stories too during the premiere of the Nutcracker, when the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy starts and you hear that Celeste, people from the audience were jumping out of their seats trying to get a good angle to look into the pit because people were were trying to figure out what that instrument was. They'd never heard anything like it. It was it sounds like chimes, but it could play as fast as a piano. You hear that really quick passage in there. You hear that music nowadays, and you don't think twice. But it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to think back to that premiere, or what it must have been like to hear that for the very first time—a completely foreign sound. I think it's also cool to think that the celeste has been used in some pretty prominent and well-known modern-day pieces. <laughs> Notably, John Williams used it in Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter. And also the Mr. Rogers theme song, actually. Also, while we're talking about the Nutcracker, I mean, we we can you know talk talk smack on streaming services all we want, but we also just have to acknowledge how amazing it is. We have streaming services nowadays and we can listen to music on demand this wasn't even that easy 20 years ago to do maybe even 15 years ago yeah back in back when the nutcracker was premiered you were lucky to hear that music twice maybe three times in your entire life and now we can listen to it you know right after this episode if we want (laughs) yeah so it's it's i do remind myself every here and there that's a pretty remarkable moment in history and in the history of music that there's so much at your fingertips, you can't even get to it all. It's great for people who are interested in music. It's also great for students of music. 
Sure. You know, oh, I, I remember definitely. even being in high school, and yeah. you know, coming by recordings was such a um, pain. Or like you would have mm-hmm. to ask your teacher to like burn you a CD or something like that. And and now you know, even just for the purposes of study, the the world really is at your fingertips. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, one other point on the Nutcracker uh, that I think most musicians learn the hard way <laughs> is how hard the music oh, is. Oh, God, man, yeah. <laughs> Even when I say that to very good players I know who maybe haven't played the Nutcracker before, they still kind of laugh. They're like, oh, really? Is it actually that hard? And to which I say, yeah, it is. It can, it can derail an orchestra very, very quickly. <laughs> it can derail a, a very good orchestra. Um, you know, it doesn't need to be, yeah, a, a good orchestra is, you know, the, you'll sometimes hear renditions of the Nutcracker where it's barely hanging together. Um, it's just, it's it's so virtuosic. Sreeder, you've played in the pit orchestra for a few <laughs> Nutcracker performances. Do you mind sharing kind of what what was particularly hard from the flute slash piccolo point of view? Um, well, the second flute part is is difficult in in the fact that you have to switch between flute and piccolo um especially in the um as, as you get into the party scene um hmm. that, that's a that's a um hard piccolo solo that you have that you have to go into cold having been playing having having been playing flute for for the previous um a half hour or something like that at that point and so you have to put your flute down you haven't touched your piccolo since before the performance started you just have to dive right in and it's, it's and it's exposed and it's it's difficult okay really yeah <laughs> um that's a problem that's sort of um endemic to the piccolo that, that a lot hmm. a lot of piccolo excerpts have that problem um or a, a fair amount too um but you know th- that's that's one thing that that just makes that part of the Nutcracker really, um, really difficult. Um, it's really, there are a lot of places that are um, very noodly. Um, and, and a lot of, um, they're, they're like finger twisters. It's kind of like, it's, it's kind of exactly the same as tongue twisters where um, your fingers are, you, you, have a, you have a couple of like cross fingerings where the fingers on one hand are doing the opposite thing to fingers on the other hand mm, yeah on your flute you're talking yeah, on your yeah. on your yeah. flute and um and you know there are often figures where you have a cell of like four or eight notes where you have cross fingerings and that's just repeated for a long time it's also never easy playing with dancers because um that hmm. you know, it's to add to it's it's hard enough to play some some of this very virtuosic music at a steady tempo um, of your choosing, but oftentimes when you're playing with dancers, you have to be very flexible. So sure, um, sure. it's this it's this combination of um, you know you have to know the music super well, almost by heart, so that you're able to to move around with it whenever. But it's also very tricky music um, and it's not just that it's tricky for one instrument at, at a time like every instrument is having their own very specific virtuosic problem when you're playing the Nutcracker which is why orchestras can even good orchestras can derail because really all it needs it's not that um, someone like doesn't know how to play it or something it's just that these are things that are liable to go wrong every once in a while even with highly trained musicians 
And when you have an entire orchestra where everyone is struggling with a virtuoso part that they have to be flexible with and they all have to keep it together, all it needs is one string to sort of go, um, one string to be pulled at in this sort of ball of yarn and, and the orchestra can sort of start to derail. And again, if this were a performance of just the orchestra, you could have this thing where the conductor just sort of has the power to bring the orchestra together and everyone just knows, like, just follow the conductor. Don't listen to anything, just follow the the mm, beat mm. of the conductor. But sure, the conductor sure. is not actually your leader. The conductor is following the dancers. So now right. it's this thing where you have these disparate parts that are all doing very difficult things, trying to trying to hold it together. And it can really, it's it, it, it can get really rough sometimes. It, it, it feels like it's on the verge of falling apart. Right, and something that's just part of pit orchestra playing in general, but especially ballet, is just the variance that can occur from performance to performance, especially if you're if you're in the New York City Ballet Orchestra or the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra when you're doing 30 performances of the Nutcracker. <laughs> you know, maybe you're at a you're playing at a Saturday night performance and you had a matinee that morning and the dancer's just a bit tired and has to take a part of it a bit slower. You just have to be locked in. Yeah. You know, and and be be able to adjust on the fly. Yeah, that was the secondary thing to to the Nutcracker performances is that we would have these sort of hellish weekends where we would do, you know, Friday evening, Saturday matinee, Saturday evening, Sunday matinee and you're you're talking back at Indiana University. Yeah. Um yeah. Uh, back at IU in Bloomington, the the Nutcracker weekends approaching the end of the <laughs> fall semester. Yeah. So, you know, I I'm, you can talk you can talk to anyone who um who played in the Nutcracker at Indiana University, and I'm sure they'll have their own private hell stories to tell you. <laughs> it was always a fun time of year back on campus. Um, yeah, yeah, it started snowing, and Nutcrackers, big Nutcracker figurines would start popping up around the music school and around <laughs> the Performing Arts Center. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will say, too, um, it's funny... When you hear ballet orchestras perform it, they usually do a pretty good job. Like when you hear them, even on recordings or in live, or live, they're just so used to playing it. They they know it pretty well, and they spend a long time rehearsing it, or at least a good bulk of time, good bulk of time rehearsing and preparing for it. And they all know it's coming. It's when you hear some symphony orchestras, very good professional symphony orchestras, do a recording of the Nutcracker. It's some of those recordings where you hear, uh, it's not their finest hour. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think a lot of it is just the underestimation, the underestimation of it. I think that too. And especially because, you know, the false sense of security that we all know the music pretty well, like to our ears, we've all heard it yeah. and stuff. So we think, all right, now I just got to sit down and play it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, the, the really difficult ones are the ones that maybe aren't listened to so often. So Probably the where the place where you know inevitably orchestras start to tear apart is the is the um, dance of the snowflakes at the very end of the first act, mm. um, where you have this hemiola, um, where the 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 winds. You may explain what that is to. Oh so yeah, know what hemiola is. Yeah, it's like a um, it's 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 essentially a three against two. So, um, mm. it's basically without changing time signatures notes that are written to fill almost like they're from a different beat even though the primary beat you've been playing does not change so it's just pretty much an awkward rhythm that can really catch you off guard yeah um so you know what sounds what sounds on the on the other end of listening to it as just sort of little fairy music you get this 
And you know, you listen to it and you're like, oh, that's little flurry beats. But it's like, okay, well, the strings are doing, you know, on the beat, the winds have to do this thing where it's like on the offbeat for like every third beat. It's this crazy thing where like, okay, so you have to think in, you know, two, four, we have to think in three. So we're actually just gonna, you know, double our big beat into two bars and and subdivide that. It, you know, orchestras really start to tear there. So um, it, it mm. sounds really easy when you're just listening to it because it sounds just like little, you know, little flurry music. but. Um, to actually make that rhythm precise um, is really difficult and it's really exposed as well so sure sure um, yeah I've also heard from the dancer point of view the that snow scene is tough because that's really the first dancing part of the Nutcracker <laughs> um, interesting yeah, yeah so uh, yeah like the ballerinas and ballet dancers are pretty much just hanging hanging backstage you know, when the whole party scene is going on, it's just, you know, often sometimes in like uh, in the big ballet companies with the party scene, a lot of the folks on stage are like the you know highest donors for, for the ballet. If you donate a few million dollars, get to be on stage and in costume. And That's hilarious. Because <laughs> um, yeah, you just kind of like stand around and smile and clap. Uh, but but the snow scene is, yeah, that's like, that's the first scene of the ballet with the actual real ballet going on. And and it's also out of nowhere these jumping splits the ballet dancers have to do, and it's very strenuous. And it's it's just kind of a, it's an extended passage. It's not a quick little piece of music. No, it's it's several minutes of pretty intense dancing. It's like seven or eight minutes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's one right? of the major. And, um, it's one of the major scenes. Yeah, and there's also snow all over the <laughs> stage too. And ballet dancers will always say, "Yeah, it, it's not unnoticed. Like it does make it a bit harder. You have to focus a bit more intensely." Just it's snow, but it's actually soap, you know, and that's on a stage and you're dancing on it. So it's, it's, it's hard from various points of view from the dancers as well. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and, and in that same vein of, um, you know, actual like phys- physical things that are making it difficult, like that are extra musical. I don't know how many productions do this, but I think it's a fair amount. And this certainly happened at Indiana when we, when we were doing it. Um, the beginning of the second act, as Clara is being um, ferried to the Kingdom of Sweets. Yeah. Um, the Which, side note, that is one of my favorite moments of music from the Nutcracker. That's usually not included in your holiday playlists on Apple Music or Spotify, because it's just kind of a transition scene, more or less, uh, just to open the second act. But it's really, really, really beautiful and really amazing. Yeah. As that happens, um, the the flutes have to do all all, all three of them. Um, the the two flutes and the piccolo have to do. I think it's sixteen um, rapid scales that are they're E major scales, but they um, they go from B to B. So they go up to the near near the top register of the flute, at the upper end of which are, there are some seriously awkward fingerings. Um, but they're rapid scales um, to the tune of like it's like. So it's like really fast. Um, and you have to do it not once, but 16 times in a row um, without really much of a break. That's difficult. <laughs> but there's now often productions, what they'll do is um, there is 
fog. There's like that fake stage fog. Oh yes. That's that yes. that that gets put on the stage. And just about midway through that scene is when the fog starts to dissipate off the stage <laughs> and down into the pit. And the flutes are the first line of defense uh, to that fog. So, you know, as we're getting ready to do this crazy, you know, series of 16 runs, there, we're, we're starting to choke. <laughs> so <laughs> You can't breathe well and you can't see anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it's wow. just little things like that. that yeah. Make it a fun weekend, let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really something. And um, also, uh, and we know what trumpet part comes after that. Dun dun. <laughs> dun 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 That's a hard trumpet solo, and in the sense that, man, this happens a lot in ballets for some reason, but trumpet solo, like very hard very exposed trumpet solos just come out of nowhere, like the famous ballerina dance from Petrushka. And then of course the Spanish dance uh, from, from the Nutcracker. But, but yeah, but that, that trumpet solo is pretty hard just because it comes out of nowhere and there's a tricky triple tonguing ascending figure and you have to hit a high C on the C trumpet. Or is it high C? It's either high C or high B flat. I always forget if I play that on B flat or C trumpet. But anyways, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's hard and it's exposed. And again, just to play it, you know, in your practice room is one thing. But to play it really well after you've already played a giant act with, again, some very exhausting, very hard music in act one. So now we're in act two. You have to play this hard solo out of nowhere. 30 nights you know over the course of the holiday season it's it's hard it's hard yeah you can kind of understand why some trumpet players don't always nail it yeah it's it's something that's worth being impressed by when they do yeah oh sure sure you know, yeah it's there, there's no need to be well put there's no need to be um jaded about the kind of absurd absurdly specific physical feats that orchestral musicians are performing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I know I certainly um, tap into this mode and uh, I don't know if other people do, but oftentimes I'll, I'll go into a performance and the attitude is kind of, um, well, of course they hit everything perfectly. They're, you know, that's their job. That, that, that's <laughs> our job. That's, if, if it doesn't go like that, then, um, then boo on us. But, you know, I, I think it's worth, um, it's worth, in the spirit of the holiday tradition or whatever, Flip, flipping that yeah. around and, and really being like, oh, wow, like, you know, he really nailed that Spanish dance solo. Um, good on him. That's, uh, especially if you're going to see it at the end of the month. That's, uh, yeah, after seeing the Christmas Eve concert, that's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one. <laughs> the Christmas Eve performance of the Nutcracker. Yeah, that's usually one of the harder ones. Yeah. <laughs> the Black Friday one's not as rough sometimes. <laughs> One thing I always kind of like about the Nutcracker and Tchaikovsky's ballets in general is I just think it's kind of funny when when you go to the Wikipedia article for all the pieces Tchaikovsky wrote. I mean, he wrote quite a bit of music. I mean, you know, we all have we all know his standard like few symphonies he wrote, his his symphonic suites, right? His, you know, Romeo and Juliet overture, 1812 overture. You know, his piano concerto, his violin concerto, but boy did he write a lot of 
other music most people most musicians maybe aren't too familiar with you know lots of stuff for solo piano lots of stuff for chamber groups and you know string quartets and such when you go to the wikipedia article it's just funny though you see this giant body of work he did and then at the very bottom and three ballets swan lake sleeping beauty and the nutcracker <laughs> it's like wow damn <laughs> do you have any favorite recordings of the nutcracker um the one that i always go to is the one with simon rattle and the berlin philharmonic um who in the interview also says man this music is really hard yeah right? yeah yeah <laughs> Um, you know, I, I remember I remember watching that interview. I think it was maybe my first time around playing the Nutcracker, and I was really feeling a little bit disheartened by how difficult it was. And and that interview really cheered me up because if if the uh, if the conductor for the Berlin Philharmonic is talking about how difficult, how deceptively hard this music is, then uh, you know that makes me feel a little bit better. It's not just you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah I, I really like that recording because they take some they one. take some really uh, insane tempos. That uh, that you wouldn't necessarily take if you had the uh, constraint of someone having to dance to what you were playing, <laughs> but it makes it pretty fun. And you know the the, right. the Berlin Philharmonic just have such a lush string sound. Um, yeah, uh, it makes it really it it really works for Tchaikovsky, I think. Mm-hmm. And Gabor Tarkovi really nails that trumpet solo nice. in Spanish dance. <laughs> yeah, that he plays it as good as you'll probably ever hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, recordings I like. I, of course, like the New York City Ballet recording um, with David Zimmerman from the early 90s or maybe mid-90s. Um, also, if you want a good performance of the Nutcracker, New York City Ballet's performance from, I think it's either 2012 or 2013, is all on YouTube, um, recorded, very well filmed, very, very well filmed, and it's, uh, it's a great live performance of it, so absolutely worth it. Check the show notes. Check the show notes. Yeah, other other recordings I like. Um, actually, uh, Gustavo Dudamel and the LA Phil put out a really good recording of the Nutcracker last year, in twenty nineteen. Hmm. It's really really great. Um, Tom Hooten, if you're listening, you also nail that trumpet solo in the Spanish dance. <laughs> He's the principal trumpet player down there with the LA Phil. Um, yeah, that's actually a really really great recording. Really great recording. And something I'm seeing orchestras like symphony orchestras do now, which they never used to do, was record the whole Nutcracker. Yeah, right? um, I wonder why that, where that change happened. Maybe, you know, as a segue, back off this <laughs> giant Nutcracker tangent, <laughs> <laughs> maybe as a segue back to our discussion on streaming services, I wonder if it's something to do with streaming services. Now it's, you know, less about how to pair it well on a CD with something, because you used to see all the time, right, on a CD, like... The London Symphony Orchestra plays the Nutcracker Suite, the Suite from Swan Lake, and Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, or, yeah. or something like that. You know, you see that quite a bit. Um, but now with streaming, where you can just kind of poke in and get what you want, or listen to what you want to listen to, or listen to the whole thing, maybe full symphony orchestras don't, don't have any qualms about just recording the whole thing and putting, putting it up there. That's a good point. <laughs> I mean... The Nutcracker and the Ballet Rep, I think, in general, is worthy of several episodes here. Yeah, which, yeah, you know. for sure. Yeah, so so back on um, discussing YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I read this a few years ago. I assume it's still accurate. But I was kind of surprised. I was surprised when I read that I think it was around 95% of the content on YouTube, like all the content on YouTube, about 95% of it is music. Wow. 
yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, oh, I mean, I can kind of see it actually. <laughs> I mean, there's so much content on YouTube, period, but there's just so much. I mean, you know, I go to YouTube mainly for music. I mean, you know, I have it open in a tab right here on my other monitor, and I was li I was listening to something earlier. Um, but yeah, like YouTube is is a, a music um, place. <laughs> Just even in their business model, right? It's clear that that, yeah, that think so. they yeah. think of themselves as a music platform. I absolutely think so. Absolutely yeah. think so, and a very democratized one, right? Where um, you know anyone can upload anything, you know. And it can get taken down too if you if you violate you know copyright and just upload you know stuff. But yeah, and I mean back to what we were talking about as you as YouTube being as YouTube being a easy place to discover classical music if you're kind of new to to uh, listening to this stuff. Um, it's the silly small things on YouTube that actually work really well, like. Spell correct is really great on YouTube. I, sh I assume it just uses the Google one that Google's developed to be the best in the world, pretty much. So, you know, if you spell Nikolai Rimsky Korsakov incorrectly on Spotify or, or Apple Music, there's a good chance you'll come up with nothing after you search it. But YouTube is, is very good. Um, That's a really but, good point. Yeah, it, it really makes it easy to find music on there. And now, um, organizations nowadays, like the San Francisco Symphony, the All of Bach project we talked about back in the first episode. Uh, I think organizations over the past few years have really embraced YouTube as a medium, as a way to grow their audience, their engagement, their engagement with their, you know, as a way to push listeners to their website and their other content and stuff. Um, YouTube is just so grand uh, a platform. Um, and I, I don't mean that, I mean that in the literal space like it's very vast and accessible i certainly have my issues with it yeah but but i'm seeing more and more you know a further distancing from the earlier days of youtube which you know even the days of just six seven years ago where where you didn't see you know the new york philharmonic uploading videos to youtube it was more you know students and, and things and you know as someone who i you know think humbly i know a fair amount about classical music I still find myself discovering new things on YouTube all the time. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that about <laughs> the other streaming services. <laughs> yeah. Really one of the one of the most important things that YouTube has on any of the other streaming services is that you can be listening to, say, Leonard Bernstein playing, or sorry, you can be listening to Leonard Bernstein conducting a Beethoven symphony. And then in the related section, you can find something like a young people's concert where he's talking about Beethoven or a, Nor a Norton lecture where he's, um, he's talking about, um, you know, the future of music or musical linguistics or something like that. That all falls into the category of, that, first of all, that's on the same platform. You have, you know, lectures on music yeah. and interviews with great musicians um, on the same platform as the music that they're playing. Um, right. and, and it shows up in the related in the related section if you're just listening to it. So, um, you know, that, that's something that, that's something that, um, that Spotify really does not have going for it in the same way. What about, um, you know, a medium that's kind of grown a bit the past few years, this whole digital concert hall, uh, phenomenon. And now in the current, you know, pandemic climate, it seems like these are getting more use than they probably ever thought they would, at least, you know, this, this quickly. Just go check out the Berlin Philharmonic Digital Concert Hall. Yeah. They are 
leagues in a way the the standard that they just set the bar for what a digital concert hall experience should be and what it can be they've kept innovating upon it you know year after year i think it might be free now for a limited time with with um um with the current coronavirus climate and you know everyone being quarantined yeah they just do a phenomenal job not only in how they film all their concerts it's really really well done um how they set up cameras within the orchestra around the the hall, the people directing the camera cuts and then editing the camera footage, you can tell they're musicians. <laughs> they know the score um, very well. They're, I mean, how they do live concerts is really fantastic on their website for the Berlin Philharmonic Digital Concert Hall. But also their backlog, their catalog and library is just immensely vast. <laughs> they just have concerts going back to the 90s and 80s. Yeah, they have... Maybe they have 70s? Yeah, I mean, they have great concerts they, from the Claudio Abado era. From the Herbert von Karajan era, and they even have documentaries about um, Furt Wangler and Karajan and Carlos Kleiber. Yeah, so some of the great music directors of the Berlin Philharmonic, yeah. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful yeah. resource. And of course, the most important thing is that um, the music is amazing. There, there's, there's really yeah. not a single bad concert on the Digital Concert Hall. I've never, <laughs> yeah. I've never heard something that was subpar from them that was... Um, so yeah, you know that's really the most important thing. The production is great and super high quality, and everything is super intuitive and um, just looks and feels really nice to use. But the main thing, the music is um, is of a exceedingly high quality. So yeah, yeah. The Berlin Philharmonic is one of the very best. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in yeah. not just in terms of the way they play, but their repertoire choice It's one of the one of the you know great. Um, orchestras and, and picking, you know, really genuinely interesting repertoire. I, I'm always mm. I'm always learning something new from their concerts. So, any favorites of yours that stick out? Any favorite concerts of yours on the Berlin Philharmonic Digital Concert Hall that you would recommend? Yeah, so one of my sentimental favorites is um, is from 2002, I believe. It's with Claudio Abbado on his last tour um, as the as the principal conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, he was retiring from, from like sort of full-time concert life because of, um, some health issues. So in his final tour, um, he, he, there's a concert on the, on the concert hall of him playing the, um, Brahms Violin Concerto with Gil Shaham and, uh, the Dvorak New World Symphony, number, that's number nine, the famous one. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not completely unique re- repertoire choicing, but, um, it's a really wonderful concert, and I think, um, you know, Gil Shaham and the orchestra—they're certainly playing their hearts out because they all love Claudio so much, and this is a sort of farewell, sort of tour for him. And this was in Palermo. Um, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and it's in the it's in the Palermo like opera house that they converted to a concert hall. Yeah, which I, I always love. I don't know why I always love an opera house converted to a concert hall. I just love transforming performance venues to to suit the, the to suit the music's needs I always, yeah i think it's fun absolutely yeah but yeah it's in palermo italy and um claudio abato is italian so he's on home turf and the audience <laughs> the audience really loves him and and the concert um no that's that's really fantastic i'm gonna have to go check that one out i actually haven't I, I'm sure I've scrolled past that one, but yeah, I haven't actually watched that one yet. Yeah. So it sounds really terrific. And uh, yeah, and there there are a lot of. I mean, like I said, every concert there is great. And um, I, I actually have a, a Twitter thread with with Chris where I throw out some 
some interesting concerts that I like. So maybe we'll link to that in the show notes and any other concerts that, um, that I think of that are yeah. cool. We'll, we'll throw a few of them up in the show notes. So yeah, make sure to check them out. I, and I think you're right. I think they are free right now due to COVID-19 if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And yeah. And the, the Berlin Philharmonic digital concert hall, it's just a little intimidating the first time you go onto it just because there's so much content and they just have so many concerts in their catalog. It's hard, hard to know where to start, but, and truthfully, you can't make any mistake. I mean, just just dive in. Anything you find, yeah. I'm sure, is going to be great. But there are some special ones, too, in there. And they also make it really easy to search for things. So if you have a composer in mind, you know, you can search by composer. You can search by soloist, by conductor. Um, I think you can even search by genre. Or like time, so like what you're saying, Streeter, is that they should create a streaming app. <laughs> yeah, actually, that would be really awesome. <laughs> You know, at this rate, yeah, it might come out next week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the listening. Yeah, with all the time that everyone has on their hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, and and yeah, and recently no, uh, they've been doing these really interesting social distancing concerts, where oh really? Have yeah, they? I, haven't, I haven't seen that. Yeah, they they, they play they play um, music that is of um, sparse orchestration or chamber music. Okay, sure, sure. So only a few instruments needed. And all of the musicians are, um, you know at least six feet apart or whatever. They're all social distancing and um, there's no audience. Um, as you'll see from episode one, I'm not, I'm not really a fan of audiences and applause. So, um, you know, this is the concert series that I've been waiting for my entire adult life is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and uh, it only took a global pandemic to get there. So <laughs> We'll take what we can get, right? Yeah. I don't know if that's yeah, too soon yeah. for a COVID joke, but no, 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 it's not a joke. It's a, it's a, it's a silver lining. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, you know, there's, it's so, it's so easy to get bogged down and caught up in all the bad news around the world. And there's quite a bit of it, but at the same time, you know, there's some little shimmers of light, some cool things happening that would not have happened otherwise, you know? So, yeah. Um, and I hope, I mean, um, Glenn Gould, he's going to come up fairly often, I suspect, but, um, he, yeah, great Canadian pianist. Yeah, yeah, wonderful Canadian pianist who um, retired from concert life fairly quickly and really became more of a media theorist or a media philosopher um, in, in the way that he approached his um, recording work and musical communication with the public. Um, he had this thing that he outlined called, I think it was the, um, the GPAA, DK, the Gould Plan for the Abolition of Applause and Demonstrations of All Kinds. Um, and this would be... That sounds like a manifesto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and this is a... Um, his idea was to have a concert series in which all applause and demonstrations of all kinds would be forbidden. Again, this is not to, um, to say that um, applause should be banned all across the globe, but that something valuable can be gained from having a concert series in which we are not subject to audiences, applause, and demonstrations of any kinds. So this, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if the Berlin Philharmonic was thinking about this when they're doing their social distancing concert series, but this is really um, a sort of version of the GPAADK without, um, you know, without the same kind of um, theory and, ph- and philosophizing that Gould had behind his idea. It really does yeah. fulfill the the requirements of that. The repertoire is completely free of any pressure of uh, of what an audience might want to hear at a concert. There's there's no you know applause in between. Yeah, it's it's interesting. 
yeah no um curious uh yeah historical coincidence yeah. i guess you know um um or serendipity 